Amen, amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And uh, for those of you listening at home, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, hopefully you're already open and, and you've read through this passage with Matt. Also, just before I forget, I want to thank the worship team who continue to do a great job. Thank you. Um, it's been a weird season. It's been a difficult season, but uh, we've got a great team and they've been so faithful. And the team at the back, thank you for your adjustments and our sound and tech team. And very thankful for all the people who are working hard to make this strange reality uh, a possibility. And again, I, I do believe that this season that we're in is coming to an end. Um, but uh, while I look back at what God has done in our midst, I'm thankful for the way he's brought the right people. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And those of you at home, you know who you are. Just thank you for all your hard work. But now we've got our Bibles open to Revelation chapter 21, and we are dealing with the final line in the Apostles' Creed as we come to an end of this series. Today we consider the line, I believe in the life everlasting. Amen. This is where the story ends. Though in a sense, it's probably truer to say this is where the story begins. As we come to the end of this creed, we are reminded that God has a plan in place, and he always has, to set things right and to make this world what he always intended for it to be. Isn't that good news? I'm not sure if you've noticed, but this world, as we know it presently, is passing away. These bodies, as we know them, are passing away. This life, as we know it, is passing away. Much of the human experience is, is us trying to suppress this truth, trying to deny this truth, and yet, it's undeniable. It's verifiably true. We're surrounded by death. And the passage that we read this morning in Revelation 21, it was written by the Apostle John. I want to just give you a bit of a reminder in terms of, of the context in which he wrote this. This is a pop, apocalyptic literature. Uh, the text we're considering. It's full of uh, symbols and, and imagery, right? He, he sees this vision, but I want to pull back a bit and just consider the man who saw the vision. The Apostle John. He, uh, before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, that's where he was when he had this vision, in exile on the island of Patmos. Before that, though, they, they tried to boil him alive in tar. That's, that's what the legend says. So most of the other apostles, as at this my mouth isn't working. Most of the other apostles at this point had already died for their faith. So, and John was boiled alive in tar, and yet he survived. And so disfigured John is eventually sent to the island of Patmos to serve out the rest of his life on earth. And so you can just imagine this scarred man on this island of Patmos, away from his family and his friends, isolated, right? And he receives this vision from an angel, John is very mindful of the fact that this world is passing away, that this body is passing away. John is mindful of the fact that this, the fact that this world is not now as it should be. And yet God graciously gives him a vision of what it will be. We need a vision of what it will be if we're going to live the way that we're supposed to live now. This doctrine is so critically important for us, church, because we are the people who get caught up in the now. And I say we as in humanity. We are the people who are fixated on this day, perhaps this week, this month, but we don't go much further than that. And the Bible teaches us consistently that if we are going to live the life that God has called us to live, if we're going to be able to endure, if we're going to be able to thrive and to serve the Lord and to take up the cross and follow him, we need a clear vision of what is ahead. We need a clear vision of the life everlasting. 
And that's what we have in this text. It's this apocalyptic text. And so the vision that we have is full of, of symbols and imagery, and yet here he points us forward. And so I just want to ask one simple question of the text. We won't be able to unpack every single symbol that we find, but we are going to answer this one simple question. What will the life everlasting be like? What will it be like? The first thing we learn in the text is this. It will be free from sin and its effects. Now, there's a sense in which this is familiar ground, right? We've already covered this. If you remember, at one point in the series, we walked through the line, from thence, he that is Jesus, from thence, Jesus shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And we were reminded that a day is coming when every wrong will be righted, when we will stand before the throne and the books will be opened and all of our works will be on display and will be judged according to what we have done. So we've, we've already covered this, and yet here it is coming back again into this final piece of the creed. Here it is as we look at the final chapter, as we look at the the glory that is to come. It almost sticks out like a sore thumb, in a sense. As you read the the passage, it's full of, you know, pearls and streets of gold and joy and and God will be there. And and there's the tree of life and the stream. And by the way, it inserts in verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then it goes on, with more glory and wonder, and it's going to be like this, and it's going to be like that. And then in verse 27, it says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in the midst of the joy and the splendor and the glory, you have these insertions, these warnings, these reminders that the wicked will not be here. And you think, well, what are those reminders doing here? Aren't we into the joy? Aren't we into the glory? Answer, yes, we are. The reason why the life everlasting will be joyful and glorious is because sin won't be there. It wouldn't be heaven. It wouldn't be glory. It wouldn't be life everlasting if any of that sin was allowed to enter into the camp. And here we're reminded, by the way, in that place, all the wickedness is going to be gone. It's not coming through the gates. The older I get, the more I find myself appreciating and longing for this aspect of the life everlasting. See, we just don't take sin very seriously as a people. When I was a kid, I didn't take sin seriously. I thought sin was, you know, breaking mom and dad's rules, stealing candy or cookies. I got a little older and I thought that sin was actually just slang for the kind of fun that mom and dad don't want you to have. Then I got a little bit older and I thought, you know, I think sin is just that word that, that people in power use to try and control those who are under them. Now I see that that was wildly naive. Now I see that sin is unfathomably evil. That, that we don't even have the ability to comprehend how deep and insidious and awful sin is. It is the reason for everything that is wrong with this world. Everything that we hate about this world is the result of sin. 
It's because of sin that one man will rise against another over the color of his skin. It's because of sin that children are stolen from their parents, forced to do unimaginable things. It's because of sin that friends grow to hate one another over petty grievances and they never get over them. It's because of sin that 215 children were killed by men and women who claimed to be doing the Lord's work. Sin is everything that's wrong with the world. It's everything that's wrong with the church. And it's everything that is wrong with you and me. And I hate it, increasingly. The more I understand of this world, and the more I understand, frankly, of myself, the more I absolutely loathe sin. But can I tell you something? God hates sin infinitely more than you or I do. And that's good news. In the final judgment, he's going to punish sin. Once and for all. With all the wrath that it deserves. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then all of God's wrath against your sin is poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It's going to be punished. And Jesus has taken it in his flesh. What amazing news. But for those of us who refuse to let go of our sin... Those who say, no, I'm going to hang on to this. I'm going to, keep, I'm going to keep sending this out into the world. I'm going to perpetuate this. I'm going to cherish this. For anyone who holds on to their sin, the Bible says they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. They can take that sin with them, but it won't come in here. That's what God says. We talked about how sobering that is. We talked about how that needs to make us urgent and needs to launch us into the world to warn people. And that's true. But here, we're in the celebration text And we need to realize that it is good news that God will not allow sin beyond this line. Because if sin got into heaven, it would be hell. If he allowed that in, it it would ruin everything just like it did in the first place. But God is going to deal with it once and for all. Can you imagine a world with no sin? I confess, I can't. I can't even begin to comprehend how deeply sin has distorted my relationships, my understanding of the world, how deeply it's distorted everything that I enjoy. I can't imagine what the sky would look like without pollution. I can't imagine what uh, beauty would look like if it was untainted by lust. I can't imagine what relationships in the world would look like if it was untainted by pride. I can't. I have no idea how deeply sin has affected everything I know and love. But one day I won't have to imagine In the new heavens and the new earth, as William Hendrickson notes, the very foundations of the earth have been subjected to the purifying fire. Every stain of sin, every scar of wrong, every trace of death has been removed. And that is glorious news. It leads to the second thing we learn in this text. What will the life everlasting be like? Well, second, it will be filled with the purified people of God. Notice that emphasis on purified. It will be the place where we will be pure and righteous and sin-free, and we will be together. Look at verses 9 to 10 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God. So the angel comes to John and he says, I'm going to show you the bride. Which begs the question, well, who is the bride of Christ? The answer, of course, is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We see this language in other parts of the Bible, uh, perhaps most prominently in Ephesians 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You see that wedding imagery? Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the church is the bride of Christ. And John is told by this angel, he says, I'm going I'm to take you up on top of this mountain. I'm going to show you the church. I'm going to show you the bride This unblemished, spotless, washed by the blood of Christ bride. So he brings him up on top of the mountain. And then look at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. And that at first glance is a little bit confusing, isn't it? I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to show you the church. And then he brings him up and he shows him a city. Well, if we can understand these two verses, it paves the way for us to understand everything up to verse 27. Because here, I told you, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. I said it right for the first time today. It's apocalyptic literature. It's full of symbols and, and uh, visions. And here he's, he sees this symbol of a city coming down. And yet we know from verse 9 that this city is the bride. It's the church. This new Jerusalem that's coming down represents the church. And so all of the symbols and descriptors that are describing this city are describing the new people of God. So, for example, he talks about the 12 gates. And and what are the names on the 12 gates? The 12 tribes of Israel. So here are the Old Testament people of God. And then he says it's got foundations. And on the foundations there are 12 names written. Which names? The 12 apostles. The the New Testament people of God. So the old and the new, all of the people of God symbolized here in this great glorious city. And so all of the imagery with the pearls and the streets of gold and the amethyst and all the other stones that Brother Matt read so well. And I'm sorry to do that to you, brother. But all of those symbols are describing the, the purity and the glory of the church. The bride of Christ that Jesus has cleansed by his blood. In the life everlasting... It won't won't be a solitary existence. You're not going to be up there by yourself. No, you're going to be up there with the people of God. Pure, glorious, enjoying one another forever. We'll finally be lovers of the truth. We'll finally be spotless and righteous. We'll finally be unified. We'll finally be what God intended for us to be. We'll enjoy relationships with one another that God intended for us to enjoy. We'll worship together and laugh together and love together with the men and women of the faith who came before us. Think about this. You're going to meet the first person in your family who placed their trust in Jesus Christ. That person who kind of began this link of faith that you've, you've benefited from as someone who grew up hearing the gospel. Think about this. For some of you, you are the first link in the chain. You're going to meet the generations that came after you that heard about Jesus Christ passed on from mothers and fathers and grandfathers. Imagine what that will be like. Your great-granddaughter comes to you and she's got this tattered Bible and it's your Bible. She says, this is passed down. This was passed down from generations. 
We heard about Grandpa, how he put his trust in Jesus. It's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a together day in the life everlasting. And it will be that way forever. Next, we learn the life everlasting will be better than Eden. So look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 22. Let's consider this imagery. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now the opening pages of the Bible, if you remember, they were set in a garden. That's where this story began. And here we find that that's where this story ends, back in the garden again. And I remember when I was a teenager and my dad was doing something, I think he called it um, Stump the Pastor. Uh, he would meet with our youth group and we could ask him whatever questions we want. Youth don't get any ideas. But we, so he would subject himself to this all the time. And I remember the one day I, I asked him, I said, Dad, Pastor, so if Adam and Eve could sin in the garden, then how do I know that when I get to heaven, I'm not just going to sin and ruin everything myself? And at the time, I thought that was a brilliant question. But when you read the text carefully, you see there's a, a pretty glaring difference. See, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able not to sin, but they were also able to sin. And this is evidenced by the fact that they had an enemy, a deceiver with them, the devil, who was seeking to deceive them and drag them down into ruin. But do we see the devil in this final chapter? Well, actually, no. We see the devil two chapters back in chapter 20. And do you remember where he is in chapter 20? He's being thrown into the lake of fire forever. Right? It's being sealed. Which is what? It's, it's God's word saying, listen, the enemy, the tempter, the deceiver, gone. And all the sin, all the sin, punished, paid for, gone. Right? Your sin removed from you as far as the east is from the west in Christ. No sin in this garden. No enemy in this garden. No tempter in this garden. Meaning what? It's a return to Eden, but better. Isn't that amazing? And he was seated on the throne. This is verse 5 to 21. He was seated on the throne and he said, Behold, I'm making all things new. New. Better. Living water will flow down from the throne of God. Through, right through the middle of the city, which remember, it's is the people of God. So living water in our midst, bringing life and vitality to all of God's creation. And the tree of life will be there. Do you remember what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned? God kicked them out of the garden. He put the angels there with the flaming sword so that they could never get back. And what was he keeping them from? He was keeping them from the tree of life. He said, I can't allow you to, to live forever with that sin. I won't allow it. But now here we are in the new garden. Sin's been dealt with. And so what do we find? We find the tree of life growing prominently. It says, on, it's interesting when you read it. It says, on either side of the river. So some commentators say, well, it's like a number of trees of life all over the place. And then some say, no, it's just like one huge tree with a, a river like flowing right through the middle. It's straddling a river. That, in my mind, just is cooler to imagine. So I'm going to go with that. It could be either. But here with this tree, there's no scarcity of fruit. It says there's 12 kinds of fruit. And if you read Revelation, you see the, the power of symbols. 12 means fullness, completion. 
So it's 12 kinds of fruit. It means there's, it's limitless fruit of all kinds. And people can come and they can eat. Why? Because now we can live forever. Because now our sin has been dealt with. It's, it's this glory going out into all the world. And you think Romans 8 talks about how all of creation is subject to futility. So it, read Romans 8 after the sermon. There's your homework. And just lean in close. It's like halfway through the chapter where it talks about how creation is groaning under sin. Like all of creation. The, the trees and the ground and the, the sun and the moon. It, it groans under our sin. Why? Because our sin just ruined everything. It's not supposed to be this way. Everything is now broken and clunky. And yet in the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be new. Behold, I'm making all things new. It will be glorious and wonderful. It will be what God always intended it to be. Think about this for a moment. That every single thing that you enjoy in this life. So just think about, think about your favorite things. right? Your favorite smells, your favorite sights, your favorite feelings. Every single thing that you delight in in this world. You realize it's like, a muted, it's like a muted foretaste of what is to come. I've been struggling with allergies this weekend. By God's grace, I don't have them now. I brought my Kleenex box just in case. But praise God for that. But, you know, every time I eat anything this weekend, I'm like, I don't know. I know I'm eating something, but I can't taste it. It's, I, it's just like this muted taste. And the Bible tells us, well, that's like the life that we're living now. Even your greatest joys in this life, they're muted. They're just anticipatory of what it's going to be like. So just imagine right now, try to imagine heaven and everything that you love, everything that's glorious. Imagine what it will be like. Now take that, that highest peak that you can imagine, multiply it by a million, and then guess what? You're still not even close. Your brain can't fathom how amazing the life everlasting will be. Right? God's not holding anything back. It's important for us to believe that, by the way. Or else we're going to try and grab all the pleasures of this world now. God's like, no, forget this. I have something for you that is so much better. It's like Eden and yet more glorious. That's the third thing we learn in this text. The fourth thing is is this. And this is what binds it all together. This is the most glorious reality. Greatest of all in the life everlasting, God will be there. Now, of course, you could say rightfully, God's here with us now. Our kids are, are learning the catechism. Where is God? God is everywhere. Of course, that's true. And yet, we do not currently experience and enjoy God's presence in the way that we were made to enjoy it. Ever since the fall, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been separated from the presence of God. And that separation remains. We're kept at a distance But in the new heavens, in the new earth, once sin and all that separated us from God has been ultimately dealt with, we will be in his presence forever. Verses 3 to 4 of chapter 21 say this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He goes on in the next chapter. No longer will there be anything accursed. 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. If this, if this isn't the thing that you are most excited about for the life everlasting, then Christian, I would argue you don't yet understand who your God is. If that's not what drives you, if that's not what whets your appetite, if you're thinking, I can't wait for the life everlasting because I can't wait for the rest and I can't wait for the people I'm going to see and I can't wait to see the new creation, if, if that is what you're excited about over and above the presence of God, then I would argue you don't yet understand who he is. And you don't yet understand who he made you to be. See, God's presence in your life, your relationship with him, is everything that you were made for. That is what you were made for, Christian. That is the deepest longing in your soul, whether you know it or not. That is why there is nothing in this life that can ultimately satisfy you. St. Augustine famously said, my soul is restless until it finds its rest in thee. You were made to live in relationship with the God who made you. Did you know that? And so all of the other things, you know, and they're going to be glorious, don't get me wrong. Everything we've talked about, the, the people we're going to see, the creation we're going to enjoy, the, the glory, the splendor, the beauty of it, all of that is great, but it would be nothing if it weren't for God's presence with us. Imagine it this way, because I find we have a hard time wrapping our minds around these enormous truths. So let's just bring it down to, to human size. Imagine you've got this young couple, they get married This young couple, they're able to buy a house. They're obviously not living in our market. They're able to buy a house. They buy a beautiful farmhouse with a large property, and they plant gardens, and they harvest from the gardens each and every year together. There's a big oak tree on the property, and so they build a a little rope swing from the tree, and they sit there, and they talk about life. They, uh, They... fill their house with children and they build a big wraparound porch on their house and they, they enjoy it. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But one day for this poor young man, his, his wife passes away and suddenly he comes back to that house and nothing has physically changed in the house. It's all still there and yet, isn't it true that everything has changed in the house? Everything's changed. Everything's now has, it comes with painful memories. All of the joys that were associated with these things, suddenly they're, they're muted, right? You can't enjoy them like you used to. But someone comes along, a wealthy man who loves this, this young guy, and he says, tell you what, I'm going to solve your problems. And the young man looks up, I'm going to solve your problems. I'm going to build you a bigger house on a bigger piece of property with a bigger oak tree. I'm going to build you a nicer swing. I'm going to build you a nicer wraparound porch, and you can enjoy that forever. Does that solve this young man's problems? Is that what he's longing for? Not a chance. Maybe for a moment he thinks that will make me happy. Maybe he thinks for a moment that will will satisfy this longing in my heart. But we know that's not going to satisfy the longing in his heart. And that's the story of Scripture. Right? God could could recreate earth. He could put us back into Eden, but better. 
and all the relationships. He could take away all these things. But if we didn't have that relationship that's been severed, that relationship that we were made to enjoy, if we didn't have God in all of his fullness, it would be nothing. Because that's what we were made for, friends. And that's what's coming to us in the life everlasting. Isn't that glorious? He is our inheritance. He is our greatest joy today, and when we see him as he is, our joy will be complete, and we'll be with him forever and ever. Now, as we come to the end of this creed, we come to the end of this sermon, I want to just say, I've, I've so thoroughly enjoyed walking through this, because this creed, I feel like it's stabilized myself. I hope you feel that too. It's brought us back to the foundations Back to the things that matter. It's caused us to lean in and look a little closer at these truths that we know, but that maybe we didn't know in here. It's fleshed it out. I feel like my roots have gone a little deeper. I hope that's true for you. I also feel like my, the circle of, of the brothers and sisters that I recognize as, as fellow Christians, my circle's grown over the course of this series. I'm just reminded that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that span across the ages. Right? I'm thankful for the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. But now here as we come to this final line, I'm thankful for the fact that this creed serves to remind us that we are sojourners. Meaning, we're, we're pilgrims in this world. This is not our forever home. We are passing through. And I know that in my soul, I know that in our souls as a North American church, we're inclined to forget this. But we're passing through. And this creed, every time we recite it and we say amen, we're reminding ourselves, we're affirming that truth. And so as we conclude this last line in the creed, as we conclude this series, I want to ask one simple question and give one simple answer. Here's the question. What now? What now? How do we live in light of what we've seen? But have you ever heard the expression, he was too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? You ever heard anyone say that? Maybe it's just me because I grew up in a, in a, I'm a pastor's kid and I grew up in the church. But I, I've heard that expression a number of times. And I'll tell you what, it is the most backwards, wrong-headed quotation in the world. It, it's so off base. In fact, it, it says exactly the opposite of what we find in scripture. Do you want to do earthly good? Do you want to be used by the Lord? Do you want to possess the fortitude to withstand storms and to stand up in, in the face of opposition that will inevitably come your way? Then you had better be heavenly minded. In Hebrews 11, what Bible scholars refer to as the, the great hall of faith, it, it lists off all of these men and women of the past who lived with this exemplary faith, who stood strong in the face of opposition. And they all had this in common. They lived with an eye on the prize. In Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what now? How do we live in light of what we have seen? Well, here's, here's our one closing conclusion. Church, Christian, 
Run this race like you believe there's a prize at the end. I want you to take a second right now and I want you to reflect back on this past week and I want you to reflect back on all of the things that you've stressed about over this past week. Right? The, you know, your family budget, the lawn that needs to be mowed, the, the, the latest announcement with the schools and what the government's doing. And all, just think back over all the things that you've stressed about over this past week. Here, let me ask you a question now. In the life everlasting, in 10 million years, will any of that matter? Let me ask you another question. Have you given any attention over this last week to things that will matter in 10 million years? You say, well, well, what's going to matter in 10 million years? What's going to matter in the life everlasting? Well, have you spent time discipling your kids to help them grow in their walk with the Lord so that in 10 million years they'll be standing next to you? That will matter. Have you spent time in the Word of God and in prayer growing in holiness? That will matter. Have you served the poor and the vulnerable in Jesus' name, pointing them to a Savior who knows them and loves them? That will matter. Have you shared the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker or any of the other eternal souls that God has placed in your sphere of influence? That will matter. Have you set apart time in your busy life to be still and know that he is God and to grow in your longing for his presence in your life? That will matter. He's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, they say. That can't be farther from the truth. Oh, that we would all be men and women who are increasingly heavenly minded. Amen? Oh, that we could say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Oh, that we would believe and live as if it were true. What Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is there anyone who would honestly look at the church, particularly here we are, the North American church, is there anyone who would look in at our church and honestly say, these folks are too heavenly minded to be earthly good? Absolutely not. If anything, they might look in at us and they might say the opposite. I think these folks are too earthly minded to be any heavenly good. Isn't that the danger? Albert Muller warns, worldly comfort, riches, Fulfillment have clouded Christians' vision of what God made them for, saved them for, and is working all history toward. Heaven is not a place of less. It is a place of infinitely more. All the good things in this life will either be amplified infinitely in the life everlasting, or they will be transcended by things that are infinitely better. You already saying and all the, all the comforts, all the leisures, all the pleasures, they're very dangerous for our souls. You know, Jesus so frequently warns us, you know, it'll, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because all of these comforts and these riches and all of this, this pleasure and this leisure, it lulls us into forgetting that this isn't our forever home. 
It keeps us from being like those, those saints in Hebrews 11, those heroes of the faith. Who, they could have returned back home, but they didn't. Why? Because they were looking for a city. Right? They were looking ahead to that heavenly city that they knew God had in store for them. And they didn't receive in this life what they longed for, but it was coming. And they lived like they believed that that was true. Church, let's be the people who live like we believe that that is true. That every pleasure, every joy, every comfort of this life pales in comparison to what God has in store for his people in the life everlasting. Do you believe that? Because your neighbor does not believe that. And so your neighbor, he believes he's got 30 years left to imagine a sponge just to wring out every last bit of joy from this life that he can. Right, so he's going to buy the, the biggest toys, and he's going to do that expansion on his house, and he's going to buy a nice fancy car, and he's going to do the lavish vacations, and so he should. Because he's trying to suck up the last bit of life that he can from this life. But that's not what we believe. Therefore, we ought to live differently. We ought to look differently than our neighbor. And if you look just like your neighbor and you live just like your neighbor and you plan just like your neighbor and you spend just like your neighbor, then I'll be honest, I don't think you believe the words that we are confessing this morning. We're called to be different. And we lose sight of that and we forget that, but I'm so thankful that God's just bringing us back here. In 10 million years, church, you'll be standing in the new heavens and the new earth. Sin will be done away with. You'll be surrounded with the people of God, enjoying his perfect creation, and you will see him in all of his glory and splendor. You'll never grow tired of him. You'll never exhaust your understanding of him. You'll never never fully comprehend the mystery it is that this holy, holy, holy God made a way to bring you into his presence forever. And on that day, you will not remember the car you drove in 2021. You won't give a second thought to the trials that you faced over this past year. You'll see clearly in that moment that your whole time on life, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, was a speck, a drop of water in the ocean. And so, Christian, we ask ourselves the question, what will matter in 10 million years? Your growth and holiness will matter. The time you spent inviting others in will matter. Your love for God and your perseverance in pursuing him will matter. So run. Run like you believe that there's a prize at the end of this race. Run as if you believe that eternity is at stake. Run this race and don't allow anyone to pull you off the track with little lesser pleasures or little lesser joys. You keep your eyes fixed on the joy that is set before you, Christian Run like you believe. To that end, as we conclude this creed, this series through the creed, I want to invite you now that we've considered these lines and we understand these lines, I want to invite you to stand with me and we're going to recite this creed together. One last time. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sitteth upon the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead.
I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we say our amen with the brothers and sisters who have gone before us for the last 2,000 years. And should the Lord tarry, we say our amen with the brothers and sisters who will follow us for the next 2,000 years. But here we stand. Church, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I confess to you from my own heart that I, I do feel very much like a hypocrite in that, Lord, it is hard for us to keep our eyes fixed on the glory that is coming. And it is easy for us to be distracted by this world. So, Lord, I, I just confess my weakness, and, Lord, I confess the weakness of your church. Lord, I'm sure we all feel this in a sense. Lord, we get, we get lulled by all of these leisures and comforts. But, Lord, we don't want to be sleepy Christians. We don't want to sleepwalk through this life. We want to run, Lord. Help us to run. Lord, I think of Redeemer. and Lord, what a, what a special text this is for us as we, as we begin um, this journey, as we launch. Lord, I pray for us as a people that we would not be lulled to sleep by worldly comforts. Lord, that we wouldn't seek to find the path that is easiest. But Lord, we would seek to run a race that, that pleases you. God, that we would seek to be about the things that you are about, pursuing the lost. Lord, that we would reach out to the world with the hope that is ours in Christ. That we'd make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey. God, help us. Help us to take up our cross. Lord, so I pray that for young and old in our congregation, Lord, we think of little baby Clark who was born today. I pray that this little boy would grow up in a home where... His parents love you and they point him to you. Lord, I think of our Redeemer kids who are going to be going to VBS, Lord, and they're going to be learning at a young age that there is a glory that is in store for us. God, help them at a young age to take up their cross, to follow you. Lord, I think of young families. I think of, uh, Lord, some of our senior saints. And for each of us, God, unique challenges that would, that would threaten to take our eyes off of you. And God, I pray that you would protect and preserve your church. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to see how we are to serve you in this stage that you've placed us in. So, Lord, we love you. We trust you. We long for the day when we will enjoy your presence. We long for the day when our faith shall be sight and the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. It's well with our soul. Lord, help us to live in such a way that reflects that we believe that that day is coming. Help us to live for things that will matter in 10 million years. God, so we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?